Today in this special summer edition of the podcast, I'm talking with an undergraduate student of philosophy interested in metaphysics, Monica McKenzie. She knows a lot about a topic I know little about, despite it being fundamental to my daily life. I think that shows a lot in this episode. But anyways, I hope you enjoy. I guess kind of in in the realm of philosophy, most people are interested in ethics, political philosophy. So like, what got you interested in in metaphysics? So, (laughs) so metaphysics basically... Like, the nature of metaphysics is to investigate, like, the most fundamental nature of the things that do exist. Um, And ethics and political philosophy and more practical things are basically based ultimately on these more fundamental metaphysical assumptions. Mm. Like, it's like sort of like um, building blocks. And the assumptions you make at a more fundamental, like, sort of ground level, they sort of, like, trickle upwards. (laughs) So kind of like metaphysics asks like the ultimate questions. I I don't know if I'd say, yeah, okay, ultimate, sure, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it like that, mostly because, um, <laughs> like, I feel like that wouldn't necessarily always be fair to ethics and political philosophy. Um, but definitely, like, um, it, it provides a sort of groundwork, in a sense. Um, I, I was talking to someone, actually, about this the other day, and they said that um, metaphysics... And, like, the most fundamental questions in philosophy sort of provide, like, an antecedent to a consequent, and that consequent is ethics. Mm. Like, the antecedent comes before. Right. Like, the groundwork. So, right, so you couldn't have, like, an ethical framework without kind of a... You're saying, like, metaphysics would give it the structure? Exactly. Metaphysics provides the assumptions that that ethical framework then works off of. Mm. Because ethics, not always, because you have like meta ethics and stuff like that, but ethics is often, like you said, a more practical area. So it just sort of like builds off of that, and you have like practical, practical um, decisions and stuff like that that are just based off these more fundamental aspects. That you need these assumptions, like sort of, to get rolling, because ethics is more practical. Like it's like um, often action based. It's not about, like it's not all about like. Um, it's not as abstract often mm. as metaphysics. So in, indirectly, you would say that metaphysics have been applied in practically meaningful ways? Yes, yes, of course. Of course. Right. Um, yeah, no, so one thing that you brought up earlier, I saw, is um, determinism. Yeah. Like uh, sort of an extension of philosophy of time. And determinism has ethical implications, like for how we ought to hold people responsible and stuff like that. And a particular brand of determinism um, can be arrived at through philosophy of time. So you have like, you have these more like fundamental metaphysical questions about philosophy of time. And from that, you like get these, um, you basically just have like a chain link of like logic that leads you to this conclusion about ethics as a result of that down the road. Hmm. So you would say that in reality, kind of metaphysics gets around this, this criticism of philosophy generally that there's little that there's kind of little impact because like, I guess metaphysics, in a way, whether or not people realize it consciously, or unconsciously influences the way that they interact with the world. Yes, everyone has metaphysical assumptions they have like metaphysical stances 
It's just like a question of whether they examine them or not. But everyone has them. Could you give an example of one that well, you think is common? Time is real. That's a metaphysical mm. question that a lot of people have. Mm. It works out quite well for us because we, you know, we tend to function on the same metaphysical assumption about time working and behaving in a certain way, and we all behave in accord in accordance with that. And you know, whether or not time is real, it's pretty convenient because it means like we're sort of on the same like wavelength. We think about things the same way as a society. In a way, though, um, there was this, you know, like Nick Bostrom's simulation argument? Uh, no. I have read one of his books, but... No, it's okay. So actually, my, my point isn't so much about the arguments that he makes, but uh -huh. rather about like the kind of the conclusion of uh, the simulation argument, which is essentially he says that, you know, it's pretty likely that we're living in a simulation. That's, <laughs> that's not actually important, though. Okay. My 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 point is, he also says that even if even if we are, you know, that shouldn't change anything about the way that we live. Do you think that you know something like an assumption of time existing actually is like an assumption that we get to make or or choose or not choose, and that it can actually affect our lives? Like I I mean, kind of like you you reference. I've never met anyone who doesn't believe that time is real. Mm-hmm. So. It is an assumption that we get to make or we decide not to make. There have been people in the history of philosophy that have definitely decided not to make that assumption. But it, it definitely has like an aspect of practicality to it in that it does like conform with the way that the world does seem to be in terms of our experience, if that makes sense. That that, that does make sense. So it's not like simulation where it wouldn't matter, matter, ugh, matter in either condition because they're identical in appearance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So besides time, what metaphysical questions are you most interested in? Most of my interests are, they're more or less related to time. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, so change, which is mm. really, really hard to divorce from time, but it is a separate metaphysical issue. Um, identity related to change. Uh, muriology, which is basically like the study of parts and wholes. Those are primarily my, my big interests in metaphysics. What got you interested in the philosophy of time in particular? Because, I mean, like you said, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty widely made assumption that you know time is real. But I don't think many people question. I don't think many people have questions about time. They don't, <laughs> which is which is a little bit concerning if you think about it. Because so out of like all of like the fundamental questions that metaphysics asks, time is like definitely one of the most fundamental of those fundamental questions. Like it influences so much about like just how we think about the world, how we act, all that. So, but like you said, it's not really thought about that much. We have a lot of assumptions about time that we never really question. And then on top of that, when we do start to question them, it becomes really, really difficult because it's really, really elusive like to think about because our experience is so like wrapped up in our in our perception of time. It's really, really hard to escape. Um, so St. Augustine has a quote that's basically referenced in just about every introduction to philosophy of time book, um, like in the beginning, where he says, basically, when whenever anyone or I know what time is, but then whenever anyone asks me what time is, I don't know. So it's like, you think you know, 
it, it works out like in your everyday experience, but as soon as you start thinking about it, you really have no idea, you know, what you're thinking about. Um, mm. So going off of a book by Adrian, Bar Adrian Barden, um, right. so philosophy typically asks two sorts of questions. There's the question about what sorts of questions we should ask, and then there's the question about how should we answer these questions. And a really good place to start out with philosophy of time is asking ourselves, what should we be asking when we ask, what is time? Because it's such a difficult, weird, illusory question to ask. Um, and this is because, like, so when you, like, start to ask yourself, what is time? Well, one thing you could say is that time measures duration, but then duration itself is a temporal concept. Right. So, I was, I, I was going to ask you, what about the definition that time is just duration? And then I kind of backpedaled on it because it's it's cyclical it's incredibly cyclical but everything in time like when you try to sit down and start thinking about time it's incredibly just circular it's so hard to avoid circularity even if like you're going to come at time and be like well maybe let's think about time a little bit later maybe like it is just too fundamental to think about in a non-circular way what about change so but then change like it, um, it necessarily involves time. Right. Like you can't think about change independent of time because change involves basically different properties and the same thing, but over different times. Like in fact, like often, like there are instances of change where the properties themselves would be contradictory in the same thing at the same time. So you need time to sort of escape that. So even something like that's technically well, depending on your philosophy of time, depending on your theory that could be considered independent of time, even then, like the things like that sort of, like it's like nothing escapes, not even like the things that aren't strictly speaking time, even like everything that brushes up against it, just sort of gets pulled into this like, it's just like this web of like, almost of just like impossible circularity, not impossible, but sometimes it feels like that. Mm. I wouldn't like resign myself to say that it's, um, that it's like unavoidably circular, Okay. But it often feels that way, for sure. Is there a way that you define time or that you've found to, divi to define uh, time outside of St. Augustine's uh, <laughs> quote? <laughs> so I, I was thinking about this. Um, I'm really reluctant to give a personal definition of time, but I can tell you some other people's definitions of time okay. and their degrees of time. There are a ton of those. So... Um, so Aristotle, for instance, had his classic time as a measure of change. Um, the Eleatics, like Zeno, Parmenides, and all that, right. thought that time was also a measure of change, but then thought change was an illusion, so they didn't think time or change existed. Um, St. Augustine thought time was mental in the mind, basically a human invention. Um, Leibniz thought time was relative, so basically dependent on the things in time. Newton, uh, Newton had his uh, his famous like absolute Newtonian time where time is independent, it's absolute of the things in time. Um, and then you also, in addition like to those theories of time, you have sort of different theories about, well, okay, assume time exists, what is time like? And from that you have things like presentism, which says that the only thing that exists is the present eternalism, which says that past, present, and future exist. 
Um, you have a growing block theory, which says that only the past and the present exist, but not the future. And then in addition to those, you have um, things like the A theory and the B theory, which talk about the structure of time. Right. So, lot, lots of different definitions out there. It, are the A and B theories kind of, are they, are they just related to tenses? Because that's kind of what I got reading up on, on it. Can it just be boiled down to, to tensing? Yes, it is ultimately a matter of tensing. Basically, the A theory is tensed and the B theory isn't tensed. So the A theory is a matter, it basically entails time as an order of events. And in addition to this, you have these sort of transitive properties of pastness, presentness, and futurity, where basically what is present moves from things in the past to things in the future. And what is future will become present, and what is present will become past. Mm -hmm. And then once something becomes past, it stays past, but it is always moving farther and farther away from the present, or rather the present is moving farther and farther into the future. And then the B theory is um, tenseless. So in opposition to the A theory, all the B theory basically consists of is just an order of events with the relations of earlier and later, and those relations never change. They're completely static. Is there a difference in the truth values between those, those two theories then? I guess, yes, yeah, yeah, in the claims that can be made within them. Yes, so basically tensed propositions are a little bit trickier than tenseless propositions. Oh. All I would, like, um, like a tenseless proposition would be to say that I am eating a sandwich at, I don't know, on March 27th at 5, right? And that can always be true, no matter what time it is, provided that that actually happened at that time. However, the statement, I'm eating a sandwich now, can only be true if that statement is made in the present. So it's only true at one time, whereas the tenseless proposition is true all the time, as long as like it was originally true, basically. Hmm. Is there... This is something I stumbled across, and I'm not actually sure how much you've read up on it because it seemed obscure to me what is what is the c theory is that a real thing or is that more of a joke um i don't really know actually i don't know a ton about that one For the way it was ex the way it was explained to me in 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 the reading that i did was that uh -huh. like it's the reverse of the b series it's or it's i guess it's the b series without time order as i guess kind of inverse in 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 the fact that it's not so much uh, important whether earlier comes first or last, but rather that they stay in the same order. I'm not actually sure what that has to do with time. It's just something I stumbled across. That, that is interesting. But um, I'll, I'll send yeah. you some stuff on it. Please do. That sounds really weird, like off the top of my head. That sounds so weird. Because like, it just seems really weird to have like, um, like order without earlier and later. Is that basically what they're saying? <sighs> It's strange. It it's kind of what it's saying. It's it's just so obscure. I'm just not even sure if it's like convertible to layman's terms because essentially, essentially, it just it just becomes really convoluted because earlier comes later. It's like a whole weird. That is really weird. But I don't think it. I don't think it was developed by McTaggart like A and B. Okay. I think I have heard of it, but I've never really, like, looked into it. 
And so. I, and I'm definitely not doing it justice here. So <laughs> so like don't take my really poor explanation of it as what it actually is. Besides the besides the more like linguistic aspects of A and B series, like what's the what's the importance of using them? So the importance of using them is normally well, so there there are two sort of directions you could go with this. Um McTaggart himself used those distinctions as part of an argument to try to disprove time, to basically show that it didn't, it, it basically either didn't make any sense or it fell into an instance of logical contradiction. So you could go that route. Um, but then also you can take these theories and these theories are compatible with other theories of time. Like, um, for instance, presentism is compatible with the A theory, right? But it wouldn't be compatible with the B theory because everything in the B theory, all the events basically have, like, they they all equally exist, right? Um, whereas eternalism wouldn't be, well, I mean, mm, it, it would definitely be a lot more compatible with the B theory. There, there would probably be some way you might be able to skew it to make it compatible with the A theory, but it's definitely way more compatible with the B theory. Um, you can actually, um, as far as like eternalism and the B theory and like just approaches like to time, actually hmm. of, of the two of them, the A theory and the B theory, um, like relativity is way more compatible with the B theory than right. it is with the A theory for instance so so yeah so that's another distinction you could make in terms of like um basically just assessing which additional theories of time apply to those two ways of thinking about time hmm. the a theory and the b theory are aren't so much theories themselves they're more potential structures for time that then like theories can sort of be applied to yeah i've heard them described as, as series instead of theories yeah yeah yeah. So do you think that we experience time, I guess, through other things only? Or do we experience time directly? Because it kind of seems to me, at least from personal experience, that all of my intuition about time has to come from other things changing around me. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm, I am I was thinking about this and I really like struggled to think of an instance like where you could experience time itself. Because... It seems like every every instance where you would be experiencing time, there's also like something is changing. Like even like like even if it's just like biological, like every it yeah it just seems really really weird to divorce experience from change. Also, in addition to that, like time itself, like this is one of the reasons like time is so difficult to think about is it's it's like it's in of itself it's not really there there's there's no um like it's just it's just not there <laughs> right <laughs> like it's immaterial it's like it doesn't have any properties it's weird right so it's 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 different than kind of a metaphysical construct like um like space right where you can where you could actually kind of measure space as the distance between things Yes, but depending on your approach to time. Mm. Yeah, so, like, I think Newton would probably say the same thing about time as you would about space. 
for some reason I want to imagine that I experience time directly. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I can't I don't know why I have that feeling that I want to but I can't think of an example where I would. Yeah, exactly. Like it it, it seems like intuitive to think about time, but it's always like sort of linked to something else. Um Sydney Shoemaker had a thought experiment where he asked us to imagine like basically well, it was a little bit more complicated than this, but as far as it relates to time and experience, hmm. um, essentially, like, just to imagine that, like, for an entire year, that everyone in a certain area, everything, everyone was frozen, and there was absolutely no change. And he basically says, like, from the perspective of the people in that area, like, there wouldn't have been any time passing. Like, they wouldn't have had any experiences in between then and hmm. a year later. Hmm. I mean, something else that speaks, I, I, I think, to, to the need to experience time outside of yourself would be something like the wonkiness of, of, of how time feels when you sleep or when you dream. Yeah. It's, kind, it's kind of like you, have no, you begin to have no reference point for time. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good thought. Um, because it kind of goes back to like... Um, like sort of using change as a reference and like we don't have anything external that we really sort of have as a reference point for change when we dream right it's right. like all like insular in a sense how much do you think in the same vein that our perspective on time or our relationship with time is based on you know our own personal subjective experience like this is kind of a, a, a weirder question but it kind of derives from that uh, which is like, do you think that certain people perceive time as passing faster than others, for instance? Um, I don't have a good answer to that because I don't really have, I don't think an appropriate grasp of the psychology that would go into that. Although it, it certainly seems that way just from talking like to other people, like, um, like sort of sometimes like the same events like seems like people will talk about like the same event like that you experienced is going by really slowly like psychologically and mm. like maybe they might say that it went by quickly for them um but it, so in regard to like how much of our like understanding of time is like based on our experience of time i would say all of it like that's why it's like really really hard to talk about is because it's um it, we're so embedded in it in our experience right. like our entire experience necessarily involves time um so Hugh Price uh has a phrase for this um or a phrase for what we should aspire to when we're thinking about time and we're doing philosophy of time um he says that we need to sort of seek what he calls a view from no one as opposed to nowhere a view from outside of time and that that's the way that we can avoid like sort of circularity in approaching time and questions about time but it's 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 pretty difficult because like yeah. all it's like necessarily involves time mm. it, yeah i yeah i don't think it even makes sense like to think about like experience independent of time yeah i mean it kind of becomes paradoxical when you think about when you think about experiencing time passing without being involved in the passing of time yeah yeah, that, yeah. The closest thing I can think about that would be something like watching a video, but even then, 
like yeah. watching a video on two or three times speed but even then it's not it, it's still not like analogous yeah yeah so i think you've you've referenced this you know before but i i i i'd like to think that you believe time is real can it can it be proven to exist without being an emergent property have you found anything convincing about that so what do you mean by an emergent property in in this um context i mean uh, i suppose a property that arises out of other things it would be the most basic definition i could give like an example could you give an example okay so um the earth is going around the sun and we call one full rotation around the sun uh a year mm-hmm. or yeah wait yeah yeah <laughs> i had to think about if that was a day for a second but that would have been I, I was thinking about how fast the earth would have to be moving for that to be possible yeah yeah no it's like the rotation of the earth that's a day yeah. and then the rotation around yeah. The sun, that's it. yeah it's been a weird year <laughs> for sure but but um do you think time could be proven to exist without it just being some emergent property of something like space or matter? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a strange question. Well, so basically you're saying... I'm saying does time only exist because of the existence of these other things? Uh, for This kind of ties into another question, which would be like, uh, you know, does time require change to occur? Well, I can give my... Um my like very uh in like the history of philosophy um or the tradition of philosophy my elusive answer which i can say um (laughs) depends on which definition of time you use Mm. Um, (laughs) uh so for instance like einstein's relativity and time it really would make absolutely no sense really to sort of like take the time out of space time like it's Mm. like i mean it is like a dimension but it's like in the context of all of these other like spatial dimensions right Right. um however i don't think you'd have a problem with that like with absolute newtonian time right Mm. so yeah i think it would ultimately depend and same thing like for your like whether um you know time could exist without change it depends like on the like the theory of time you use because some you know theories of time do require change and some don't like that's um that's i believe what actually don't quote me on this i don't remember <laughs> the conclusion of my paper but i think that might have been what shoemaker was getting at hmm. how versed did you have to become in like the the physics of of time or did you become versed in the physics of time to understand time um I tried at one point. So there's there's actually an interesting sort of distinction here in um, like basically explorations of time and philosophy. Mm. You have basically two different paths that don't always diverge, but sometimes do that you can take. One is a more metaphysical sort of approach, right. which is essentially like um, the sort of approach you're going to get from someone like McTaggart with your E theory and your B theory. And then you have more of like a philosophy of science approach, which is very physics heavy. And then even more exciting, um, sometimes you have basically a melding of the two, which I think is the direction that like more modern philosophy of time is trying to go in. Hmm. Um, Personally, (laughs) personally, I'm a little bit versed in like the physics of time. I don't have a physics background at the moment. I'd like to change that, but, um, so I'm kind of like in a, eh, sort of like, um, I'm definitely more on the metaphysics side at the moment, but I'd like to sort of become a little bit 
more balanced. Do you want to be, do you want to become more balanced? I know this is kind of one of those, um, I don't know, a double barreled question, but do you want to become more balanced in your perspective because that's, that seems to be the modern way things are going? Or do you think that's genuinely a better way to understand time? Um, I'd have to say both. Okay. I mean, first of all, even if it wasn't a better way to understand time, I feel that an understanding of it would be necessary to evaluate it as a good understanding or a right. bad understanding of time um, in the first place. Also, some aspects of physics are so obscure that I'm not sure whether, like, the obscurity itself is attractive. Like, especially, like, like from, like, uh, a perspective, like, where I'm coming from, like, from philosophy. Like, obscurity is, like, it, it's not... It's not prized, but sometimes obscurity can sort of be, it can sort of sometimes appear uh, to make things smarter or sound more intellectual than they actually are. And sometimes they are terribly intellectual. It's just, it's hard to distinguish between the two unless you like sort of go in and take a close look. Is that because it's just harder to evaluate things when they're obscure? Exactly, exactly. My intuition is that probably a perspective like where, um, you know, physics is playing a large role is probably best, but I'm not sure how much of that is just based on me perceiving it as just, you know, obscure, difficult material and being like, wow, that sounds really smart, you know? Mm. How much have you read on like, how much have you read on kind of, this is, this doesn't require like a, uh, a terribly in-depth understanding of physics, but how much have you read on how time uh, kind of empirically changes in different places a little bit so like high on mountains and, and at sea level for example and and in hot and cold temperatures it's really it's really strange actually it is strange um yeah i have read a little bit on that um enough to be confused <laughs> right how would you describe kind of your perspective on how um you know, the difference in passage of time at, you know, point A and point B um, geographically, uh, I guess, plays into, I don't remember my exact wording, but I'm not sure if you understand what I'm saying. Was it our experience of time? or Yeah, our mean, experience of time, exactly. Reflective way we think about time. Both, actually. So, I think our experience of time probably largely stays the same as it ever has but um like in terms of our collective like way of thinking about time um like it's sort of it, i it's sort of like widely known at this point um like just pretty much anyone knows that from like at least a perspective of like general relativity like time and things in general like aren't necessarily really what they seem you know like right. it it's sort of um I feel like it's like a very good thing because it's um, it's in a sense thought provoking. It's sort of it's sort of um, it pushes you out of like your your comfort zone in terms of like just in terms of your assumptions about time and like the fundamental nature of reality. Like it's sort of getting you used to this idea that you know things really like might not be the way that they seem, and there's like a plausible physical explanation for why they're not, even though it hmm. seems. Intuitive, and, and and the assumption that would I guess be 
be questioned is that time passes uniformly, right? Yes, yes. And I and I guess physically that's been dispro disproven, yeah. Um. Oh, the time passes uniformly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think they did it with like atomic clocks at two different two different yeah. two different places. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that I I, you know, honestly, if if I come across as like, um confused on the subject matter it's because i genuinely am so like oh, okay me too <laughs> I, I i have i have high praise that you're able to like study it for as long as you have because it, it's it's almost like i'm sure you've had this experience at one point or another with philosophy of time but it probably it probably gives you a headache to think about at one point or another it does but i don't know i, I think it's more just um it's just becoming very comfortable with never knowing what you're doing <laughs> Or if like what you're thinking is really um, the correct way that you ought, to, not the correct way that you ought to be thinking, but like whether you're really grasping a subject matter in the way that you're supposed to be grasping it. Is there a good way that people in philosophy of time have figured to evaluate claims about time or no? Well... <laughs> Besides from a, you know, like a logical perspective of debunking arguments yeah. that way. So between you and me, um, <laughs> I was actually just talking with someone about this, um, like the other day. So because like time is so weird, elusive, hard to get a grip on, hard to like think about non-circularly. Like it's really easy for anyone to just go into like philosophy of time and say whatever they want about time. Yeah, no, but anyone can say, like, whatever they want about philosophy of time. Well, not, like, whatever they want, but, like, it's, like, it's, like, a realm where, like, weird theories, you know, are just, like, everyday stuff. So, in a sense, that's good. It allows, like, for a certain amount of creativity. But also, you know, anyone can probably just say anything. I mean, as long as they give a good argument for it. But that's not what you're doing. Trying not to, no. Have you... Have you kind of developed any arguments yourself about time or right now have you mostly been evaluating other people's work? Um, I've primarily been evaluating. Um, one argument I do have is about the B theory. Um, hmm. I a little bit ago for a paper. Um, so essentially the reason that McTaggart says that time must be unreal is because he says that there are two ways of thinking about time, the A theory and the B theory, which already that by itself is a little bit problematic. So that's very, um, that's like very black and white and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Um, like that, that might be like a false sort of, a false dilemma there. Like there, I, I'm sure there could like easily be thought of other alternative structures mm -hmm. of thinking about time. And there have been, but put that aside. Um, the reason McTaggart says time is unreal is because he says that the A series involves a contradiction, which is essentially that, and since, you know, the thing he's doing is he's evaluating the existence of time, not really what is time like. His question mm. is, does time exist? So the only way to get out of a contradiction in the A theory, which is essentially that the qualities of pastness, presentness, and futurity are contradictory if they apply to the same event and all events eventually will acquire all three properties so they're contradictory if they apply to the same events at the same time right 
So you can get out of it by saying, well, provided, you know, they're not true of the same thing at the same time, but then you have to assume time, which is the thing like that the A theory is trying to explain. So McTaggart says that won't do. So then he goes over to the B series and he says that the B series doesn't have any contradictions really, because it has really similar properties like to a number line, just like relations of earlier and later. Mm. But McTaggart thinks change is necessary for time, right? Right. And he can't really imagine any sort of instance where he thinks change would be possible in the B series because the relations are static. Nothing about it like ever really changes. Mm. So some work I did on that was sort of a defense of the B theory, essentially trying to show that there is a way of sort of thinking about the B theory or the B series, I'd say, the B, the B series and in a way that's compatible with change. And that sort of involves like a rethinking of change itself, which if you think about change as sort of being a matter of variation and persistence. So essentially looking for those qualities of variation and persistence in the B, theory, in the B series itself, which, which I, was hoping, I was hoping you could do if you applied or if you thought of the B series itself as a sort of set of events mm-hmm. and then thought of essentially persistence as a matter of the common characteristics that all of those events have in common, sort of similar to like with the series of natural numbers, every natural number essentially involves the idea of like n plus one essentially and that's Mm. how you drive the entire series of natural numbers similarly the b series you could say it's event plus one so it has that sort of persistent that persisting quality throughout the entire set while at the same time all of the elements are different there are no um there are no uh rehashes of the same element element in the set so my hope was to argue that you have in, if you think of the B series as a set, that strictly speaking, if you were looking for change as a matter of variation and persistence, hmm. that you could find it, not you know in like the more like fluid way that you would imagine, but you could find it strictly speaking, if that's how you wanted to define change, if hmm. you thought about the B series as a set. Can you apply that to a particular example of an event? I guess of a series of events? Yeah, sure. So essentially, let's see. So take a particular section of the B series. Um, Maybe like say event five, event six, event seven, right? Hmm. So all of those events sort of have this quality of being an event in the B series. And they all have that in common. That sort of persists through these different variations, through these different instances. And they're different because of their relation to the other events. Like for instance, event five has the property of being earlier than four. That wasn't, sorry. Event six has the property of being earlier than five and or no later than five and earlier than seven sorry does that make any sense vaguely would you be able to actually i I don't know if i want to make this more unduly complicated than it has to be but i was going to say would you be able to give like names of events what do you mean names 
I don't know, like a... Like Bob, <laughs> Harry, Sally? Not necessarily, but a, a thing that happens during an event. I'm I'm trying to think about how this would practically apply. Oh. Rather, oh, ra- rather, I, than, I, rather I, than logically I, apply. I have no practical answers. You've, you've come to the wrong field. <laughs> okay. No, but that is a good question. Like, so it makes sense, sort of like, so if that's how, this is actually like sort of why I think it needs a revision because, or not a revision, but at least an account of how. So it makes sense, like, just sort of on a more abstract basis. Exactly. That's what I was thinking about. It doesn't fit in with how we think about change at all, Mm. how we experience change. Like, it's, so some sort of some sort of account would have to be given essentially of just what's going on there. How does this track to our experience? Mm. And for some like for some theories of time, like sometimes <laughs> like all you really get is like basically, well, like, you know, your experience is basically an illusion. Yeah, I I was wondering too, I mean it raises an additional problem if you want to track your, uh, I, I guess if you want to track, if you want to track a, a theory of time, or a defense of you know a time series to people's actual experience with time because, I don't know if, I don't know if you could ever come up with a, a general idea of how people experience time. Yeah. Have you ever That's, have you ever um... thought about people with. Um, more disordered thinking so like people with something like ptsd how they might experience time or how memories play into time i have thought about how memories play into time um actually uh saint augustine has something interesting on that where his he thought you know time was an illusion time was purely mental and really like um all the past really is is our memories basically and all the future really is, is our anticipation. But it doesn't have any like real bearing outside of our, like um, our, our mind. Like essentially it's like sort of a hallucination caused by God. Mm, yeah. I wouldn't describe to that personally, but. Are there any other ways that you've thought about kind of the relationship between memory and time? Because in a way, you know, like the this kind of the sillier thought experiments about time, like the last Tuesday hypothesis and all that. Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like memories are definitely integral when we're talking, especially about the past. Yes. Yeah. And it's really like interesting, like an interesting quality, if nothing else, of our experience of time. Like to say that, um, like essentially our sort of access like to the present as opposed to like the past and like the future mm. like in terms of like um uh basically how we have you know we can't do anything to affect anything in the past or in the present but we do have knowledge of the past and we d- or, sorry i meant in the future we we do have knowledge of the past but we don't have knowledge of the future so are you, it, are you saying that we couldn't directly aff- affect the future not that we couldn't affect the future in the sense like causally we couldn't like certainly what we do in the present has 
or it appears to have bearings. I won't go as far as to say certainly because um, we as philosophers never do that. <laughs> right. But um, it, it definitely seems to have bearings, uh, causal bearings on the future, but you can't reach out and affect the future in the same concrete way you can the present. I guess one last major question I have for you is um, kind of kind of underlies everything we've talked about this far. And it's how would how would you describe the movement of time? Because it, it seems like a common a common notion that that time is passing and that it passes faster and that it passes in slower and that it passes slower and, and so on and so forth. But is there, is there a better way? Uh, hmm. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, well, I know I've been saying this, but like, it depends on which theory you have. So like, right. um, an A theory, like there, there does seem to be like a flowiness of time, like um, like a dynamicness. Whereas um, like opposed to like Einstein's relativity, like there's no flowiness there. It's just, it's like, um, it's more a matter of, of, of like the time is, not that it's, it's sort of moving around in a sense. That, that's a bad explanation, but. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, so time isn't really flowing. It just sort of, like, it's like more of a. What's the word? It's. It just it stays put. That's also a bad way of saying it, but. It's discreet. It's static. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah it's static in a way that um, like definitely at least our perception of time isn't like our perception of time like seems to be of like time is like flowing. Like, um, like you often hear people say like time is like flowing like a river or something like that. Mm. And like, like, um, like there's like a sense of fluidity, particularly about um, the present. Like um, that like what encompasses the present is like sort of, it's not well-defined if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, a common, a common. This this might be more of a, a linguistic problem, or a semantic problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the time, it's kind of funny when you try to think about the present. Um, a lot of the time, when you start to kind of ha- do this metacognition thing, when you're when you're thinking about, you know, the present and and time as passing around you. Um, it, it seems to me that you're really not thinking about the present. You're thinking about the moment that just occurred and so on and exactly. so forth that you exactly. never actually experience. That, that, that's the odd part. I think you can only experience the present directly, but every time you think about something, it's always kind of the moment after or the, yeah, yeah. the moment after. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the, I think it's called the specious presence. So there's like a distinction between like, um, like what actually is the present and then like this thing called the specious present which is um basically like just like the set of moments that are like really close to the present like whether like like basically close enough for us like to sort of like sort of perceive them as like being present even though like they're technically not if that makes sense just because like they're so close to the present 
and it feels really weird to think about like our behavior in the present as divorced from like like um as divorced from those moments that were like just before it have you ever thought about kind of ethical concerns that tie into i don't know if it's ethics but it's definitely eh, yeah it would be ethics because it's concerned with how you should behave there's this common notion that you should be that you should be present or that you should be in the present yeah statements like that don't make a lot of sense under um like an approach like eternalism right right they do make a lot of sense over um under an approach like presentism um as far as like practically speaking though i think that's a great approach it it seems to work well even if it doesn't you know even if uh eternalism was the case Mm. but yeah but that it is a really weird aspect of this is going off a little bit on on a little bit of a digression but it's a really interesting aspect of how like often in philosophy of time and just just um in philosophy in general sort of when when we're trying to argue for something that really does like it conflicts with our everyday experience Mm. like often often the approach seems to be that because there are instances where our experience isn't always reliable that that's really not that problematic like so Mm. if we can something that like from a logical perspective makes sense and then we have basically our account through experience um like makes less sense logically or it falls into contradiction or something like that they're often well not always but um sometimes there seems to be like very very like few qualms about maybe abandoning the account that um conforms with our experience for an account that is maybe like more that makes more sense from a logical perspective unless unless you're a a certain type of phenomenologist yeah (laughs) Yeah. but are there any other metaphysical areas that you've i guess been thinking about recently um or is it all about time these days it it mostly it mostly comes back to time just because it's so it's so fundamental like this is really honestly person personally a flaw on my part but it, it just feels really weird to think about anything else before thinking about time hmm. i know that's not a good approach i've had people tell me that's not a good approach i'm aware it's not a good approach but like psychologically it just it doesn't make so much sense to me to to think it's it's harder to motivate myself like, to think about other things before thinking about this because it's almost like in a sense if we don't have like if we don't have a good answer at least or at least parameters for finding a good answer about something as fundamental as time i just find it hard to see the use of really anything else that um sort of builds off of that in a sense hmm. is that why is that why typically I, at least from my perspective, you haven't seen, you haven't seemed as interested in, um, I guess, ethics, for instance. Yes, that that's a flaw on my part, but that that would probably be the motivation. <laughs> it, it it does make sense because I mean, if, especially if you're an ordered thinker, if you're if you're more methodical in the way that you do things, where you want to have a groundwork laid, um, I could definitely see the motivation for wanting yeah. to have, but. 
do you think that you could actually get concrete answers to these questions? Because this is this is a, a perennial question that plagues philosophy. I would really like to think so. <laughs> right. I hope so. Um, I like, think there's a good cause for optimism. Mm. Because there's always been these kind of two conflicting perspectives about philosophy. And, and one, in an ethicsy sense, would be that, you know, over, you know, how many years has it been? Over 2,000. That that philosophy and that our ideas have progressed um, in in some way. Uh, towards I towards I guess what what must be an ultimate answer, and then there's the other one, which is kind of like, um, like Gotha gripping at the reins uh, of a runaway carriage type deal, um, where we really don't know what's going on, and we're just kind of making it all up as we go, and it might seem better in that certain ideas might seem better now, um, but that we really have no way of evaluating that. Yeah. Um... I will say that certain questions are perennial, mm. especially like the most fundamental ones and certain stances are perennial. Mm. So, and I think like unavoidably so, but, but I do think that, you know, we are, we are making progress for sure. Like, um, I, I think if groundwork can be laid on a logical level, that that is sufficient for progress because that can be built off, built off of. Like as long as, as long as previous endeavors, philosophical endeavors, can be learned from and applied one way or another to future or not future to present endeavors, then then I think I think we're making progress, even if it's it's very very slow mm. and often often not circular but sometimes circular. You think? Do you think that sometimes in philosophy? We, we can go backwards? Definitely so, but in, in two ways. We can go backwards in an unproductive way. Um, mm. But we can, I think we can also go backwards in a productive way, in a sense, in a sense that some positions and some questions are just perennial because they're so fundamental. Right. So in a sense, it makes sense to be returning to them constantly. And it's not necessarily... It's not necessarily a sign of a lack of progress, but just that um, essentially just a focus on basically the fundamental issues that underlie the questions we're asking. I think that was a good enough answer for me. I'm, so, I'm sorry for, for uh, you know, keeping, uh, taking you down this kind of um, no, no, alternative no. line of questioning. No, Is there- not is there anything else that you can think of that you want to talk about? Oh, I don't want to keep you for too long. Let me look at my notes. Um, hmm. uh, I think we went over everything. <laughs> All right, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being so patient. Honestly, I've had no idea what I've, I've been doing for the past. What is this? hour and 10 minutes not as a your your question asking is very structured just as a result of my more unstructured thought no i mean in a way it's like it's it's more reflective of like the way that we experience the world um that things are very unstructured uh and very free form i don't know if there's ever been i actually i take that back 
the most enjoyable conversations that I've had have been freeform ones. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a sort of kind of there's a, there's an intuitive appeal to you know the naturalness of talking to somebody and and new questions coming to mind, which happened quite a bit here. Um, yes, but then there's like that alternative approach where you're like, um, for instance, uh, paparazzi or you're like a hired reporter and you have to go ask these very particular questions because you need specific answers. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think with philosophy in particular, that's a bad approach. Um, the paparazzi one. Oh, the asking particular questions. No, not, not asking particular questions, but expecting a concrete answer. That's going to like, yeah that's gonna that's gonna give you i don't know i one of the things that i enjoy about philosophy is that i've and and it's kind of counterintuitive is that i've never really felt a catharsis with it you're just kind of always chasing this uh this payoff (laughs) progress is the comparative of which nothing else is relative right exactly yeah I, i think that's I, I think you, in philosophy, you need to have, you know, um, you need precision, particularly in the context of academic philosophy. But I feel like this more, I don't feel like there's enough of this in academic philosophy. Like it, it felt like very, it felt very weird, like to try to sort of talk about it in that way. And I don't think that's a good thing because I think this is a really good way for coming up with like new ideas and like, and stuff like this. Like it's so much less insular in a way. Right. And I, and I think there's this, there's this problem. And I talked with the professor about it a a while ago, he was supposed to come on this summer, but um, he's actually the person who got me into philosophy, Uh, but he ended up, um, you know, having some radical life changes going on so he couldn't make it. But um, out of curiosity, um, a guy named uh, Dr. Russell Swanson. He's oh, okay. a fantastic professor. Um, kind of taught like f- more of a history of philosophy angle. Um, okay. but really opened my eyes to the fact that there are different ways to to see the world. And he, you know, he was very interested in that like cultural lens approach, where like everything we see is kind of um. Uh, I, you could call it tainted, but it's more so just in a neutral way, influenced by our, our uh, pre- preconceptions. And, you know, kind of his his explanations of philosophy really tied in what I was learning on a more psychological, soci- sociological um, level. So, um, It's really interesting. I think it was like someone, the reason I asked who it was, was... Um, someone like really similar to that like um like the description of like um really like loved philosophy but ended up like not going into it like as a professor like academically well I mean he did but he kind of like someone else like that got me into it and I think I think that's like a good thing I don't think I would have ever gotten into it if I had just been like if I had just seen academic philosophy as it is right and I mean it's not necessarily I don't want to even misconstrue it because it's not like it was pop philosophy um it's it's just, it's a, do you have a description for what it is? More organic. Yeah, I, I would say that that's the case. But I guess the point of what I was saying is that there was a conversation that we had and like there's kind of this plight that's been on, or I guess blight that's been on philosophy for the past, I don't know, 150 years. 
200 years. Um, and, and one is that on, on, on one side you have scientists who can produce, um, you know, reliable answers that seem concrete, even if scientists agree that, you know, they never know anything for sure. And there's all this empirical, um, probability and that theories change and evolve and so on and so forth. Um, that they definitely satisfy the public more on that side, but that also there's this double-edged sword where philosophy has kind of, um, put itself up in an ivory tower mm -hmm. by, by being, by being kind of inorganic and, um, uh, taking on this, um, I don't know if, I guess it would be an appearance in a lot of instances of pretentiousness. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, and I think it puts people off. Um, it does. It really does. Yeah. And it's too bad because I, I, I think that like, I mean, like you say, metaphysics addresses some of the more fundamental questions i mean obviously you have scientists if you want to look at like newton or einstein who have theories about time but nonetheless they're doing philosophy when they're doing that mm -hmm. um and uh i think kind of in line with the conversation he and i had um the the real job for philosophy in terms of like its survival as a discipline is going to be kind of rekindling uh, a positive relationship with the public as, as a... We, we never had that great of a relationship with the public, it's... with other people for that matter. <laughs> Interpersonal things are not always the, um, not always like the strong suit of philosophy. Right. People in philosophy. Right, but... Sometimes, but not always. Right, but if you look at accounts of philosophy, I suppose like this is going way far back now but if you want to look at like plato aristotle era we're talking about so, uh, we're talking about philosophy as a as a deeply social discipline yeah that relied constantly on talking with people and arguing and so on and so forth um and and not just like talking uh, not just arguing in the sense of um you know critiquing somebody's paper or critiquing somebody's logic but arguing on on a on a more public front um yeah and I mean, of, of course, this this applies to all academia because um, it, it's kind of inherent to academia to get really in depth into into topics and to specialize. Um, but I'm not sure how that obscurity is going to be taken away. Yeah, me neither. Um, yeah, I it just because it I don't know by like the beauty of philosophy is it is a bit obscure, but mm. in a, in a good way. Like it is terribly esoteric. Maybe, but it depends. It depends again on on what you're talking about because a lot of people I think would find like something like Plato's allegory of the cave like very thought provoking and, and easy to digest, or they would find, um, you know, I, I'm gonna give an English pronunciation. They would find like Sartre's brand of existentialism about you know the anxiety of freedom and and so on and so forth. You know, very persuasive and and easy to digest also. Um, yeah, but, but they'd also find like Plato's like um like world of forms like very like especially if you got in like the um like the details of it they find it very esoteric. Right, for sure. I'm I'm not saying that philosophy is is you know ever been uh, ever been completely accessible, um, especially if you get into like 
I mean, philosophers throughout the the past century. Um, I'm trying to th- I'm trying to think about one who hasn't been obscure in any way, but I can't really think of one. <laughs> maybe like I want to say maybe somebody like Camus who focused mainly on fictional works, mm-hmm. but even even he gets a little bit more obscure when he starts to talk about his actual philosophy. So it's it, it is it is difficult ground to tread, but um. I think I think that there there are ways to make it less obscure than it is. I mean, for for one, like a conversation like this that reaches. Thanks for listening to the first bonus episode of the summer. There's more to come soon. With any questions or comments, feel free to email industryplan at industryplan.co. See you in a while.